Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Susie Ferguson. Today we're welcoming back onto the program Dr. Liat Kozma. Liat, welcome back on the program. It's nice to have you here. Uh, thank you for hosting me again. Liat Kozma is a senior lecturer in Middle Eastern Studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She, she has worked on a number of topics related to women and gender, uh, state policy in Egypt, but also in Palestine. And in our last episode, we talked about uh, the topic of sexology, last time you were on the, on the podcast, sexology within Arabic and uh, Hebrew uh, writings of, of Jewish and Arab do- doctors operating in Tel Aviv and Cairo and situated that conversation into a global context. Um, in today's episode, uh, we're talking about a somewhat related topic, I guess. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's in the realm of gender, and indeed this episode is in our gender series on Ottoman History Podcast, uh, uh, curated by none other than Susie Ferguson. And um, our, our topic will be uh, marginalized women in uh, 19th century Egypt. Uh, this topic arises out of your uh, previously published monograph, entitled Policing Egyptian Women, and I'll invite our listeners to check out ottomanhistorypodcast.com to get the citation on that. So you, you looked in your, in your book at how the state sought to, uh, I guess you could say, you say policing or discipline or um, uh, manage uh, the, the behaviors of, of women, again, that you refer to as marginal mm-hmm. women. A good place to start would be for you to define exactly what you mean by a marginal woman. How are these, these women marginal uh, in comparison with other women, or does this really encompass a wide variety of women, in fact? Well, there are two ways to approach this uh, question. One is to say that my sources are police and court records. So when women get into trouble and get into the police, they're often those in the margins. The other uh, definition I could offer is that most women in 19th century Egypt lived within uh, the family, they were married, they, ha- they were mothers, and these roles defined their being. And I'm looking at those women who were outside of this framework, that is, um, adolescent girls who um, lost their virginity before marriage, slaves and monumented slaves, and the third categories of prostitutes. So they're being outsiders to the uh, normative family made them marginalized. And these uh, marginalized women are really so important for understanding this. This is, you're studying the pre-occupational period of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So before 1882, this period Mm -hmm. of Egyptian history is one of uh, immense socioeconomic transformation, Mm -hmm. as we know from the work of Judith Tucker, for example, on women Mm -hmm. and how um, the economy, economic activities such as the growing cotton industry in medieval Egypt really uh, changed the lives of Egyptian women in a fundamental way. So, um, Liat, maybe the, the first question uh, to ask is really how some of these major transformations that Chris has just mentioned, right, in the economy, um, in the structure of social life, uh, you know, impacted women in particular, um, and then these groups of, of what you call marginalized women that you're dealing with. Well, I'll start with a general answer, which is how these three categories of women were affected by changes that Egypt was undergoing at the time. So... We have a centralizing um, legal system, police station now in every neighborhood, uh, c- uh, hierarchy of courts, and the policing of women by their families and by their community is now uh, supplemented by the state. 
And what I was looking at is how this everyday policing was um, integrated into these new state mechanisms. I used the example of marginalized women to look at how the state is felt in a neighborhood level and family level, and not only the higher echelon of societies. So this this is one answer. The other is related to how these different categories of women uh, were treated differently at that time. One example is the uh, gradual um, abolition of slavery. So we have abolition of slave trade, and we have the... um, 1877 um, Anglo-Egyptian convention that encourages the manumission of slaves in large numbers. And one of the questions I was asking is what happens to these women who are all of a sudden free in a society that is used to see African women as slaves. Um, Another category of women who's added to this analysis is the Hakimas, the female doctors who are now stationed in ev- in every police station and examined the body of women for signs of defloration, lost virginity, um, and um, miscarriage. So the this ad hoc function of the midwife who could be summoned as a expert witness is now a certified doctor, a female doctor sitting in the police station and uh, examining every woman on a regular basis. So what you describe is the sort of um, increasing intervention of the state um, through, you know, technologies like uh, Mm -hmm. expert witnesses and Mm -hmm. forensics and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. criminal investigation into sort of intimate life. Mm -hmm. How does looking at women in particular help us to see this kind of um, perhaps change or expansion of state power in, in a specific way? The way I see it, private patriarchs are inviting the state in. So if we used to think of the state as this octopus sending its tentacles to every corner of our human existence, here these are fathers who bring their daughters screaming and kicking to the police station and demand virginity examinations. Or if it's a... A runaway slave, we have somebody coming to the police station and asking the state's help in finding this runaway slave. So when we look at this margin and the weakest elements of society, we see how the how the community invites them in. But to complicate it even further, these are women themselves who come to the police. If they run away from their enslaver, they press charges for uh, sexual or physical abuse. If it's a woman who was raped, she's coming to the police station to accuse her rapist, and if the police doesn't believe her, she then has an appeal to the Supreme Court saying, no, I was really raped. I did not consent to have sex. So the relationship between the state and these individuals is also coming from, from the very bottom. So this is interesting because it complicates, I mean, the sort of um, narrative that we have about kind of a double patriarchy, right? That there's a Mm -hmm. relationship between what you call private patriarchy and the family. Mm -hmm. And then the state kind of makes a makes a deal almost um, Mm -hmm. with 
the sort of family-based patriarchy and sort of works off of that. And what you're saying is that women actually also were able to make claims on the state in new ways. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could give us an example or sort of tell us more about how this would work. And, and were they successful? I mean, um, you know, with the, the new standards of evidence and new forms of criminal investigation, would a woman who came to the police and said, I've been raped, mm-hmm. um, would she actually uh, receive receive some kind of justice or compensation from... Well, the offense in uh, pre-colonial Egypt was not called rape, but hat erd, that is um, actually defloration. So a woman had to prove if she came, if she arrived at a police station, that she did not consent to her defloration. The the crime was not against her person, but against her hymen, and she could be a consenting party. So this is complicated of course to prove that you did not consent and women would come to the police station um, and ask to be examined and then the Hakima if the rape was recent could say she had been a virgin until two days ago and there's a fresh wound and therefore her story is credible women knew and fathers knew but also women themselves knew they could go to the police station and have their uh, claims substantiated Mm. on the other hand when women uh, sometimes go to the police station because they miscarried and ascribed it to violence so women came to the police station with the aborted fetus and say we were beaten two days later uh, we had a miscarriage Uh, and here they almost all of them failed I read 20 such cases, Wow! and uh, 19 failed because the Hakima said, uh, th- I could not show a causal relationship between the beating and the miscarriage. The only exception was a case in which a woman was uh, beaten up by a sheikh who looked for her husband. He wasn't home. The sheikh beat her up. She came to the police station. She filed a complaint. He denied it completely. And she said, okay, I withdraw my complaint. And the police said, well, she wouldn't have accused such a powerful man if it wasn't true, and decided Mm. to believe her. And out of 20 cases, that was the only exception. So I think that women believed they could trust the system more than they actually could. Mm. I mean, this is a... I know this from in part from uh, Susie, your own pod- podcast with Khaled Fahmi, where he talks about the changing legal mm-hmm. environment in Egypt. I mean, a lot of the cases you're describing sound like the same types of cases that were handled by uh, Sharia courts in the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. in Egypt uh, prior to the 19th century. And of course, mm-hmm. those c- courts remain. But again, we have this uh, sort of uh, pluralistic uh, legal environment at, the, at this time. Uh, so wh- what's different here? What, how, is, this, is this essentially similar to how things would have played out uh, prior to the rise of the police adopting this role in uh, law, or is what's new? I mean, Thank you. It's a good question. Several things. One is an investigating police. In the Sharia court, you bring the case to the judge and you have his ruling. Here you have a police committed to, to study the truth. Whether or not they reach the truth is another question, and we cannot answer it, but that this is what they see as their goal. So they initiate investigation, they ask, uh, they interview witnesses, they um, they go back to uh, 
witnesses and confront them with new evidence. This is something you didn't have in the, in the Sharia court. And therefore, um, things like honor killing that wouldn't come up in, um, in the Sharia courts because the, nobody is interested in pursuing this case, these cases. Now there's an investigating police who's mm. pursuing such cases. So this is one difference. Another is the hierarchy of courts. You have the investigative police. Then you have Maglis Ibtidai, Maglis Esti'anaf, and Maglis Al-Ahkam. In all of those, you can, uh, the sentence is being reviewed. And what you can see here, which you don't have in the Sharia court records, is uh, the reasoning of the court. And if you have an appeal by one of the sides, you have the, his own reasoning and his own justifications, which is something that you didn't have in the, in the Sharia court. And Maglis al-Ahkam could go back to the police and say, you didn't do your investigation properly, we need more facts about this and that, and then review the sentence and uh, decide accordingly. That's really interesting because one of the things that Khaled Fahmi talked about in his podcast was the sort of way in which, um, you know, the sort of growth of this new parallel way of trying Mm -hmm. cases Mm -hmm. and doing investigations actually gave people more options to try cases that wouldn't have met, you know, uh, standards of proof under, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. Islamic law. But, um, you know, because new kinds of investigative evidence, Mm -hmm. forensic evidence, you know, this kind of the Hakima, you know, looking at the hymen, this kind of situation were allowed uh, were acceptable standards of proof um, in the newer in the new courts uh, that this allowed different kinds of cases to be tried. So I'm curious, you know, um, we talked with him about a variety of cases. Um, I'm curious, you know, your work looks specifically at cases dealing with women. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you see the um, the sort of power of women uh, versus the power of men being different in this uh, in this sort of new system. Are there different kinds of cases being tried? Are women more or less successful? I looked mainly at cases involving women, so I can't really tell. I didn't do this kind of uh, comparison. What I can tell you is that women did come. So so if a runaway slave believes that the police can help her or um, an entire ring of um, smuggling of manumitted slaves to uh, Palestine and other parts of the Ottoman Empire is discovered because women go to the police and explain that they were kidnapped. Then they could. For- what I learned is that they, these particular women could force the police to be to investigate and get involved in cases that otherwise wouldn't have been investigated. So I guess the percentage of cases involving women were relatively marginal, um, relatively small. So, but I didn't do such a comparison. Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Susanna Ferguson talking with Liat Kozma on her research on uh, marginalized women in 19th century Egypt, which again has been published as a monograph that you can find out more about through our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. I want to bring the conversation back to the the lives of the women and and ask a little bit about the voices of the women that come Mm -hmm. out uh, in your sources or Maybe you can speak to the lack of voices. But I want to know, maybe through a series of anecdotes that will give our listeners a sense of what they can find in your book, 
what was happening to women in 19th century Egypt? What were the kind of situations they found themselves in when they did come to the police or ended up being brought to the police? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what does it tell us about what's, what's happening uh, in Egyptian society at this time? If I may, I want to start with uh, an anecdote that it's not in the book, but in an article I published about uh, girlhood in 19th century Egypt, there's a story of a girl who was crushed to death in a cotton factory because she she walked there at night and um, and there was an accident and the investigation uh, reveals a horrid existence of um, she was ten years old and actually the text reads something like. We, we investigated and found out that all of the women working in the factory are under the age of 10, wow. uh, which is to me not women, but they use this, this wording. Um, so, the, so what I learned from this particular investigation is that the girls and the boys worked in different sections. They continued working after dark. They were adult supervisors in the factory, but were, they were out smoking or chatting while the accident happened. So this is all I have, more or less. But it's one indication of what was it like to be a girl in 19th century Egypt. Another story is, is related to, um, to the question of defloration I talked about earlier, in which a girl had to prove that she did not consent. So what happens is that the girl was raped in the fields and no, there were no witnesses, his word against hers, and the um, uh, police investigation concludes that she, was, um, she, that she consented and therefore both of them are to, uh, to be blamed for a premarital defloration, which is the crime, sent to six months imprisonment and then he said, I would like to marry her as, um, t- t- as a compensation so because she now won't be able to marry anybody else. And in particular social setting, everybody is happy with this solution. That is, the family, her family is certainly happy. The, the man is certainly happy. He doesn't have to get into trouble. He'll be, he spent sec- six months in prison, but other, uh, other than that, he's off the hook and he can marry her. A- and so far, it's in 19th century standards, that's normal, that's standard. I've read 100 cases which end up more or less like that. The uh, interesting part for me is her appeal to the Maghreb al su- Supreme Court. Um, the handwriting was difficult, so I didn't... Um, managed to read the entire six points, but she submitted an appeal of six points saying, first of all, I hardly left my father's home. That is, I'm a very chaste girl. This is something that wouldn't happen to me. Uh, second of all, he proposed he wanted to marry me, and I refused. It was his way of, uh, of imposing marriage on me. Uh, third, it was a violent rape. It was not something I consented to. And the medical examination should be able to prove that. Um, and I don't remember now the other three points. But the, my point here is that she was narrating her innocence. She was trying to prove to the court and probably to her community that 
that she did not consent to to something that the soci- society of course d- does not forgive and it's eerie in a way because she's not only narrating her own experience but she's um anticipating some of the sort of assumptions that are going to be made totally. about her that she was spending too much time wandering outside the home that maybe she was asking for it you know i mean i think um especially you know, now in our current moment, certainly, you know, in the American context, these are still questions that are being asked. And, um, you know, I think to have a document like this where someone is showing that they understand what the allegations that are going to be made against them are is really interesting. Exactly. That, that's what I found. Um, and we were talking about thinking about voices. And here I was, I felt as if I was hearing her voice. And of course, Readers, one of the critiques I got on this particular, my analysis on this particular case was that somebody probably told her what to say, or it was a family reputation um, on the line, and therefore somebody from her family made her do this. It felt so real to me, but you can never know. It felt like a woman speaking. I mean, I I have heard such things said about also like analysis of court records and whose voice is actually represented in the court Mm -hmm. records. But I mean, just knowing the Ottoman case and knowing how many interrogations they recorded with, with peasants, with all sorts of people from all walks of society, women, when crimes are involved, you have all these voices to assume that these voices are all totally organic would be, you know, naive perhaps, Mm -hmm. but to assume that it's not the person's voice would fly in the face of, hundreds of years of documentary evidence of history in which people are providing mm-hmm. uh, testimonies and, and investigations. So when you say you, you have something that, that, that sounds like someone's voice, we must understand on some level, these are, these are her words, even if they are also the words of someone she knows at the same time, you know? Well, I, I felt her insult. That's the thing. She was offended that somebody would have thought that she had consented. And that was the text I was reading, or that was a text I felt I was reading. You know, but even if it's not, um, even if we can't ever know who mm-hmm. it is who's writing or speaking in these texts, I think what this kind of moment shows you is that there's um, there's a there's a debate being had about who's right in this case, right? Mm-hmm. Which in itself is interesting that the court is now a place where people are going to you know, people are going to come and expect that their voice, whether it's a collective or an individual voice, is going to be heard. Um, and that, you know, claims about um, being in the right, in a way, are going to be advanced in this space. Uh, and that individual claimants, whether it's a family or an individual woman, mm-hmm. are are able to know what the court is going to deem important for deciding guilt or innocence, right? So this claim of not going outside her father's house, regardless mm-hmm. of whose voice that is, that's a fascinating claim because it shows that the person or the family is aware that that's important information mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that honor and you know uh, innocence are things that are now, there's a kind of shared vocabulary that's playing out in the space of the court. Yes, I agree. I actually have a case not of a woman, but of a father who's coming to, he's British, uh, but he resides in Cairo. He's, the child was uh, raped by a servant, and he's coming to the Sharia court demanding compensation. Now, in Sharia court, in the Sharia court logic, this would be Mahar al-Mithal. She'll be- receive the dowry, which is a- equal to the women 
equivalent to her in the family and uh, status. Uh, so he's coming and he's trying to talk to demand Mahal Michal, but to him, he, the way he explains it is saying, "I want compensation because it's ayb with us too. It's shameful with us too, and in order to compensate us for the for future uh, expenses and loss of marriage prospects, mm. which is not the Sharia logic at all, mm-hmm. not the." But he's he knows he's going to get compensation, and he's trying to explain and justify it using the logic he knows. But what's so interesting about both the last two examples that you've given us is that it returns us to your first point, which is that mm-hmm. in a way, you know, um, these women are are marginal because they're they're falling outside of a rhetoric about the family and the home, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of defining normative womanhood at this moment, right? So right. the claim of Uh, I didn't go outside my father's house and the claim of, you know, I now won't be or my daughter now won't be a suitable wife Mm -hmm. are both kind of appealing back to that um, sort of dominant Mm -hmm. discourse. And it, you know, reminds us that, in fact, you know, that's what uh, these women are kind of marginalized against in a way. That's a good point. The sense I get from hearing you speak is that... uh, these sources do have voices of women from time to time, but also that there's a filter that the Mm -hmm. voice of women who are involved in cases doesn't always make it into Mm -hmm. the the text that we have as historians. Well, normally what we get is a summary, Um, a summary of police investigation. And then when you find it, you can find it either in the police archives and then it's only the summary. I know Ehud Toledano worked with, uh, protocols, but these were in Ottoman Turkish and from a slightly earlier period. I didn't find protocols. Um, and then it's um, it's mediated from the summary of the police investigation to the to the Magales, to the different courts. Um, very rarely, very, very rarely we have the actual voices of people actual quote. One example, which is, again, not of a woman, is a um, uh, suicide note of a Tunis- Tunisian Jew um, in 1874, which he leaves for suicide letters, and they are quoted, mediated, though. They are written, two of them are written in Hebrew, translated to French, translated to Arabic, because this is the only way they can read it. And another case, which is so weird and rare, of a prostitute who used to be a slave, a manumitted slave. She ends up being a prostitute. She's being murdered by... She's murdered by a soldier who fell in love with her and wanted her to leave the brothel and marry him. And then when the brothel keeper is investigated in the police, she's telling her story, mediated. Her language is, as usual, mediated by the um, by the police. She's telling how she napped outside of the brothel and she woke up and heard a noise and, and that was a gunshot. She woke up, she sees a man rushing out of the brothel and he's shouting at her, go away you whore. And this, almost shouted at me out of the page because they never do that. They never use colloquial Arabic. They never mm. use a first, uh, a direct quotation. 
I don't know why. I don't know what happened there that made the uh, police scribe actually use the, her mm. actual words. Mm -hmm. But this is the only sense I, I have. It's the uh, very rare moment I have of hearing actual, actual voices, actual words. And for those who know the earlier court records, you do get this from time to time, right? Like Leslie Pierce talks mm -hmm. about an example of that in, in morality tales. You reminded me of the, the fact that within the Ottoman historiography, we have these new Nizamiya courts mm -hmm, these mm -hmm. that are not the Sharia courts that they have all throughout uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire, and it's a similar case in Egypt. And for these courts, which are newer, they're supposed to be modern uh, secular courts, we don't have court records. People find some from time to time, but in the, so in the conventional source space, we don't actually have those records. Even though they're the newer modern ones, we don't always get as close to the source as we had been getting with those earlier mm -hmm. uh, examples. I guess for the case you're talking about in Egypt, it's similar. That Actually, as the state grows, here we have an even stronger filter. This is true, and I think that very few people managed to find um, court cases for the post-82 period. So it's much easier, as you probably know, to do research on 19th century Egypt than on later period. Well, but I think at the same time, you know, for me and for our listeners, it's a reminder that sometimes, even though the sources aren't as rich as we hope they were, always they don't always have the voices we want them to have, it's still worth going out there to find those instances where you do get that voice or get as close as you can to it and then really sometimes put that at the center. Uh, even when it's the exception. And so I appreciate you sharing with that aspect sharing that aspect of your research with us today on the podcast. Thank you. I found this conversation very interesting. And you I worked on this project since for since 2004 and you had questions I never thought of. So thank you very much. Oh, well thank you. For those who are listening and enjoyed this conversation, there's probably a lot you're wondering about the topic. And for that purpose, we do have a bibliography on our website with uh, links to the publications of Professor Liat Kozma, as well as other relevant uh, secondary readings referred to throughout the episode and, and otherwise. We have links to related episodes on Ottoman History Podcast from our series on gender uh, in the Ottoman Empire in the modern Middle East cura curated by our own Susie Ferguson uh, you'll find uh, many episodes uh, related to today's topic on our website that's also, leave a, that's also a space where you can leave your comments and questions um, maybe get onto our Facebook group and get in touch with our Facebook followers over 20,000 strong we are now um, and that's of course always a space where you can get our latest uh, content and, and updates on what's next on Ottoman History Podcast that's all for this episode. I want to thank all of you for tuning in and invite you to join in next time. Until then, take care.